Good morning, guys. For those of you who don't know, my name's Mike, and I am uh, the campus pastor here in, in Brigham City. And, um, you know, we're going to be, today we're going to be in Mark chapter 12, verses 35, 36, and 37 primarily. So um, it's only three verses in this passage. If you want to grab your Bibles, if you want to get on your Bible app, if you don't have a Bible app on your phone, it's real, one most of us use is the version Bible app. I would recommend downloading that on your phone. It's just great to have. It's, and, and come the beginning of the year, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll do a reading plan together so we can kind of you know, be involved in, in that uh, with each other and, and hold each other accountable and stuff. But, so go ahead and turn to Mark 12, 35. Um, that, like I said, that's going to be the passage that we're, we're primarily focusing on. And, you know, over the last three weeks, we've, we've seen Jesus answer questions in, in, these, these, um, in these specific lessons that we've gone uh, through, these questions from three different groups of religious leaders. And, <clears throat> excuse me, and these, these leaders, they weren't, they weren't asking questions so that they could discover truth about Jesus. Uh, they were asking questions with the idea of trapping him, of, of alienating him from his supporters or even to get him in trouble with the Roman government. We saw uh, three weeks ago, we saw the Pharisees, have a, they had a question about, about taxes. And then the next week, the Sadducees uh, question, trying, uh, they were trying to disprove the resurrection. We talked about eternal marriage in that, in that one that week. And then last week, we, we saw the, the scribes had a uh, a law question. It was it, it revolved around the greatest commandment. And like I said, each of these groups that has come to him with these questions um, has had the intention of disproving him or or discrediting him. And each of them comes up with what they really think is a kind of a humdinger of a question, right? They 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 probably gathered together and, and said, "Oh, here's a good question. Oh, here's a good one," because they wanted to try to 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 disprove him. Um, or, or trap him, but the problem is that they ask these questions with a worldly perspective, okay? Um, but Jesus answers them from God's perspective, and the answers <clears throat> are way deeper than they had expected. He answers each of them with, with such skill and, and wisdom that at the end of the message last week, at the end of the text that we were going through, um, it said that no one else dared to ask him any questions, Okay, so at this point, their 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 bull rush is is over, right? They they tried to you know if, for the football fans, they tried to run the the no huddle offense at the end of the game and and overwhelm him, um, but they failed with it. He he defended against their attack, but he didn't just defend against it and then and then limp away. He he. He didn't just do a goal line stand and stop their questioning. No, he, he took the ball and he goes on offense himself. Um, he, see, these, these questions of theirs were antagonistic in, in nature, right? But the, the problem was that the questions themselves weren't enough to reveal who Jesus really is. So today it's his turn to ask some questions. And he begins with a question in our, in our first verse in verse 35, it says, and it's a question about the Messiah. It says, and Jesus began to say as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? I'll read the one that's on the screen. On the screen. Why do the teachers of religious law claim that the Messiah is the son of David? 
So unlike the religious leaders whose questions, like I said, were meant to trap, Jesus has a desire to reveal himself to them. Guys, this is one of the greatest attributes of God is that he seeks to reveal himself to us, right? To you personally. And it's hard to imagine when you really think about the, the, the God of, of all creation longs to reveal, reveal himself in a personal way to me, right? I, I sit and I think about, you know, God breathing the universe into existence, right? And, and, and in that moment of, of infinite detail of planets and moons and stars and, and all of that stuff that he, that, that was created in a, in a breath, at that same time, he had a desire to reveal himself personally to me and to you. And King David was wowed by this as well. In Psalm 8, we see this in verses 3 and 4. It says, When I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place, what are mere mortals that you should think about them? Human beings that you should care for them. See, David is awestruck when, when he thinks about the way that, that God chose to reveal himself to us. And the Bible shows us three different ways that God reveals himself to us. The first is a general revelation, right? And this reveals, excuse me, this, this refers to uh, general truths that we can, we can uh, be know, that can be known about God through nature. We just saw one of those in that, in that passage from Psalm 8. But in Psalm 19, verse 1, it says, The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. And the second way is special re revelation. And this refers to the more specific truths uh, that we can, we can know about God through, through the Bible, through supernatural miracles, through uh, the physical appearance of God, through dreams and, and, and visions and the written word, and, of course, through the, the life and example of Jesus Christ. And then, finally, we have personal revelation, which refers to the work of the Holy Spirit. And in Ephesians 1, Paul says, uh, Paul says that the, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. See, God reveals himself in, in many ways, but it's all about Jesus. Okay, Jesus is the pinnacle of, of, of God's revelation to humanity. He is God in the flesh, and at the, at the heart of the question that he's, he's posing here to, these, to these, these leaders is, do you know who I am? That's the question I want to use as, as the framework for today's message. Do you know Jesus? Do you have Jesus right? Because at the end of the day, guys, at the end of the day, there is nothing more important than the decision that you make about Jesus. We can disagree and we can, we can argue about a hundred different religious, you know, uh, concepts and, and rules, but none of that matters like our decision about Jesus. And uh, although I said that our passage today was only three verses, we're actually going to look at several other passages today too, um, because in this passage that we're in, Jesus actually references Psalm 110 as the means to reveal himself in these three verses in Mark. Psalm 110 is the passage that, that Nick read just a minute ago. And here it is again. 
says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. The Lord will extend your powerful kingdom from Jerusalem. You will rule over your enemies when you go to war. Your people will serve you willingly. You are arrayed in holy garments and your strength will be renewed each day like the morning dew. The Lord has taken an oath and will not break his vow. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord stands at your right hand to protect you. He will strike down many kings when his anger erupts. He will punish the nations and fill their lands with corpses. He will shatter heads over the whole earth. But he himself will be refreshed from brooks along the way. He will be victorious. Now, I think that it's, it's worth noting here that it is important to Jesus that we grasp the sentiment described in this psalm that, that he references. But are we seeing it? Did we recognize what was most important, the most important point when Nick read that, or, or are we seeing it up here now? Um, see, Psalm 110 is the most often quoted uh, psalm in the, in, the New, in the New Testament. It's quoted or alluded to 33 different times. God wanted us to understand something that was fully and appropriately explained in this passage. And there's some there's some pretty colorful language, right? Some pretty interesting stuff in there, right? Um, so it should be no surprise to us that this was a concept of interest to the Jewish people as well. But the reason that Jesus seems to be asking this question of his own is that they weren't fully understanding the entirety of the passage. And we don't want to miss out on it, on it ourselves. So let's look at, at what they got right, what they did understand. The religious leaders thought that they knew the Messiah, but they only had a, a really a partial understanding of his identity. Their idea of the son of David was, was really you know, missing the mark. So to understand this, we really need to understand um, and explain the Jewish picture of Messiah. Now remember, the, the, the Jews had been under uh, foreign rule, different, you know, at different empires, um, had, had ruled over them for, for much of the previous centuries, right? But they also know that they are God's chosen people, so they expect to be delivered out from under this oppression. And, you know, it, and of course, because, it, you know, let's look back at, at some of these, these phrases that we saw in, that, in, in Psalm 110, right? Of course they're going to think that. It says, humble your enemies, uh, footstool under your feet, extend your powerful kingdom, rule over your enemies, go to war. People will serve you. Your strength will be renewed each day. He will strike down many kings. He will punish the nations, fill their lands with corpses. He will shatter heads. He will be victorious. They absolutely expect a conquering king. So, so the problem seems to be that they are hyper-focused on the physical element and therefore their understanding of, of the Messiah is, is limited. They thought that he'd be physically limited as to what he would do or what he, he could do based on their human understanding of those known characteristics of, of mankind. So they have, a, they have a, this sort of conceptual drawing uh, in their minds of a conquering king and, and, and what that would entail. 
But they also understand the, the physical bloodline issue that, that we're talking about here. Remember, Jesus' initial question was uh, in, in 35 was, why do the, re- the teachers of religious law claim that the Messiah is the son of David? Right? That's, his, that's his question. The fact is, they had no problem understanding and believing that he would come from the lineage of David. It had been laid out many times in, in Scripture. Um, you know, this is kind of a famous Christmas verse, right? We see this often, this, this one referenced in, in Isaiah 9. It says, for a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor, David, for all eternity. And similarly, in Jeremiah 23, it says, For the time is coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up a righteous descendant from King David's line. He will be a king who rules with wisdom. He will do what is just and right throughout the land, and this will be his name. Our, the, the Lord is our righteousness. In that day, Judah will be saved, and Israel will live in safety. And it wasn't just the religious leaders that knew um, about the Messiah coming from the line of David. We know other people saw him um, as that as well. In, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew's gospel is, is written primarily to a Jewish audience. Um, and, and that phrase, son of David, it gets referred to six different times in that. But we also see that in the, in the gospel of Mark, which is not written to a Jewish audience. It's, it's written to a Gentile audience, probably to the Romans specifically. In Mark chapter 10, you know, a couple of chapters ago, we saw the blind beggar Bartimaeus refer to him as the son of David. And then, and then in Mark 11, we saw that a couple of weeks ago uh, as well as, as G- the, the, what we called the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. The crowds were, were shouting, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. But Jesus' ge- uh, genealogy is also laid out twice in Scripture. But the interesting thing is that, that those, those genealogies differ, right? And this is a place where people sometimes offer some, some criticism of the veracity or the trustworthiness of the Bible. But here's the thing. The genealogy in, in Matthew is likely Joseph's lineage, whereas the genealogy that's laid out in, in Luke is Mary's bloodline, right? Each of them descended from David and here this is this is why this is so important because if Jesus was only a descendant of David on on Mary's line then critics could make the case that bloodlines are are based off of uh, paternal ancestry and therefore the prophecy is false right that's what they they could say or critics could have a similar claim if if the only bloodline was through Joseph because Joseph is the adoptive father of Jesus. So they would claim that the prophecy was false that way too. As it is, Jesus is a descendant of David both ways, perfectly and completely fulfilling prophecy. Yet another example of the veracity of the Bible and how we know that we can trust it. So a lot of people understood that the Messiah would come from the lineage of David and they expected him to be a king. That militaristic, uh, conquering hero that's mentioned in, in Psalm 110 really excited them as an oppressed people. 
So they were, they were right in calling him the son of David, and they were right in viewing him as a, as a coming king. But the Messiah was more than that. So let's take a look at what they missed. See, they took the, the bulk of that Psalm 110, right? All of that military conquering uh, you know, commentary that, that got them excited, and they focused on that. But they missed the first verse, the part that held the key to the Messiah's identity. And that's the part that Jesus quotes when we look in, in uh, uh, verse 36. It, Jesus says in, in verse 36, For David himself, speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies beneath your feet. So first... I want, to, I want you to pay attention to something. As he references this, this psalm, Jesus affirms the Holy Spirit's role in the writing of, of Scripture. He's explaining that David is, is writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is so important, guys, um, because even the, the church today, we have... We have those who fail to understand that Scripture is inspired by God. And in 2 Timothy 3.16, it says that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, guys, that doesn't mean that, that a bunch of mortal men found uh, God to be inspiring and then they wrote about him. That's not what's meant by, the, by that word inspired. That word inspired, the, when it, in, in, the Greek word is theopneustos. I don't know if I pronounced it right. It's theopneustos, okay? And it means the breath of God, right? It means that it is God-breathed. This is, it is written by his power. Now, those, those red letters... Um, for, you know, maybe some of you are, are flipping through your Bible and you see, you know, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see some red letters in there. If you're, if you're wondering what that is, those red letters are simply the, the actual physically verbalized words of Jesus on earth. Okay, that's, that's what those are. But those red letters are no more important and have, have no more ownership by Jesus than the rest of Scripture. The writings of, of Paul or Moses, or in this case, David, are the words of God. So Jesus goes on in the, in the next verse here, and he says, Since David himself called the Messiah my Lord, how can the Messiah be his son? The large crowd listened to him with great delight. <coughs> now guys, God is not a God of chaos, okay? Jesus is not... He's not intending to confuse anyone here with this. He's an extremely skilled teacher. So he's forcing us to pay attention to something. When we, when we look just at, at verse 36 here and we see these, these words that I, I have highlighted here, you notice that the first word, Lord, is all capitalized, right? When we see that in Scripture, that's, a, that, that's there to replace the, the word Yahweh, which is the actual name of God in Hebrew. Now, I don't want to get, I don't want to get too far off track here, but the, the name Yahweh was changed to capital L-O-R-D, 
in early scriptural texts because largely because the, the, the Jewish scribes felt that Yahweh was, was too sacred to be spoken or to be written. And so in an attempt to be uh, honoring, they changed it to capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And later on, it was Latinized to Jehovah, which is, which is um, something that, that many of you are probably familiar with hearing as well. So we know that that first iteration of the word Lord there is a reference to God the Father. And then almost immediately after, we see the word Lord again with only the first letter capitalized. And so again, as we dig into uh, you know, original languages, this, this mostly lowercase version of the word Lord Excuse me, is the Hebrew word that many of you have heard, Adonai, which means my Lord. Now, my Lord is, is a, a title or a phrase that's used to address um, a king or, or someone with a, a, a greater authority than the speaker or than the writer. Okay, it's, it's an, exa- an example of subjection, it's a demonstration of subservience to someone higher. Okay? Um, you can, we, have, we have a small dog that was, before we got him, he was, he was abused. And so, you know, if I go to pick him up or stand over the top of him, he tucks his tail under to demonstrate subservience to me, to, to demonstrate subjection to me. It's just something that, that he does. And, and this title, My Lord, is from the speaker or from the author. It's, a, it's, it's the same kind of a demonstration. It's you are higher than me. Okay, it's, that's, that's what it is. When it's, when it's said, and this, guys, this was written by King David. So who could be higher than a king? Only a divine Messiah. But David is sharing a conversation here, right? He's, he's, he's talking about a conversation that happens here. The Lord, uh, Lord said to my Lord. Now, this isn't... Uh, Reference to, you know, a, a crazy person muttering to them themselves, right? David is stating plainly that this conversation that he's referencing is between the God of heaven and the divine Messiah. The Messiah that, that we just saw a couple minutes ago in that passage that I shared from, from Isaiah that, that started off with a child is born to us, referencing Jesus' birth and then calling him mighty God. This passage is God, the Holy Spirit, one part of the Trinity that is, that is inspiring David to share a conversation between the other two parts of the Trinity, God the Father and Jesus the Messiah. See, guys, this is what they were missing because they were so focused on trying to make the, the Messiah be what they wanted him to be, what, what they had been told to believe by the religious leaders of their culture. Culturally, guys, a, a king would be greater than, than even his son if his son was to, to succeed him uh, and follow him as king. So culturally, King David would never refer to his descendant as being greater than, than him unless, unless he recognized that 
that descendant's divinity. David was, was king, and yet he calls him my Lord. He calls him Adonai, or master. So this is clearly someone greater than David. This is God the Son. But it doesn't end there. It, go, it goes on to say, sit at my right hand. So again, there's a, there's a, a cultural aspect. I know we didn't, we're not all that familiar with, with you know, kings and queens and, and royal you know, situations like, like, you know, like this, but there's a cultural aspect to, it, to this that often gets overlooked. To sit at the right hand of the king is a position of highest honor, of, of highest dignity. It's a position of, of acclaim and a, a, a position of power. And to sit, to sit is a reminder that, the, that the, the work is finished, that victory is sure, right? Jesus, that conquering king, would not sit unless victory was certain. So the full picture that Jesus is, is painting of the Messiah, of the, the son of David, is someone who is from the line of David, but also someone who's greater than David. And in Revelation 22 Verse 16, Jesus explicitly describes how he fulfills both. He, it says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this message for the churches. <clears throat> I am both the source of David and the heir to his throne. I am the bright morning star. So when Jesus asks, why do the teachers of religious law claim that the, the Messiah is the son of David? They understand the physical bloodline here, not the deity of the Messiah. And Jesus is, is forcing them to think, how could the Messiah be David's son and his Lord at the same time? So hopefully to us, the answer is clear. The Messiah would be both man and God. As David's son, he'd be human. And as David's Lord, he would be divine. So the fact that Jesus is, is simultaneously um, both fully man and, and fully God, guys, this is a difficult one for us to, to wrap our, our, our human heads around, right? It, it is. I, in fact, I'd, I'd venture to say that none of us in this room can fully understand this concept. But the good thing is that God never asks us to understand everything. He tells us, to believe what he says in his word. So these groups that, that Jesus is, is talking to, they are quick to form their opinions about the Messiah through their narrow worldview. And he's reminding them to look at this and really to look at all of Scripture through the perspective of God. And when we look to God's word to try to gain that, that perspective, we see ample evidence of these two simultaneous, uh, these, these simultaneous two natures of Jesus. So let's dig into that um, a, a bit more. The Bible teaches us that Jesus is a, a single person with two natures, divine and human. And these two natures are united in his person without confusion or change or loss. Now, this topic alone um, we could spend several sermons 
going through, but, but we, we just simply don't have the time. So I want to remind you that you can dig into this topic, and I would really recommend that you do. You can dig into this one and, and so many others um, on, on our website, PursueGod.org. Um, but sp- specifically, you, I would send you to, this, to the Pursue God podcast and episode number four that digs into this more. If this is, this is some deep stuff. Um, and so I would just you know, suggest that you, <coughs> that you go there and check out the Systematic Theology podcast and, and topic four that's called Who is Jesus and, and Why It Matters. And I mean, I can't implore that enough, guys. Take, this is such an important topic. Like I said at the beginning, what the, the, the opinion that we make about Jesus, what we believe about Jesus is the most important thing the most important decision we'll, we'll ever make. So take the time to dig into this. Make the effort. Make this uh, a priority because nothing else is, is more important. Okay, so, so Jesus is a single person with, with two natures. And, and when we say that, when we say person, it doesn't just mean like, it's, it doesn't just mean um, a flesh and blood human being, although one of his two natures is fully human, but by person, we're talking about um, an individual being that has a mind and has a will and has emotions and therefore can have relationships, right? And can communicate. And in his divine nature, he shares, he shares equally and eternally with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. So um, the, the human nature he, he took on when he came to earth and was born of a woman. This this is um, the double or what is it? Final Jeopardy question uh, for this is is hypostatic union. That's what the, this is is uh, is called. And you can dig into you know that more um, as as well if if you want to. And and I would like I said I would suggest that I think it's really important that we that we under that we dig into this knowing we'll never fully understand it. Right. But we do want to be able to have a, a an opinion. Um, to form our opinion about Jesus based off of what he says about himself. Like I said, there is ample evidence uh, to this biblically, and Jesus spoke to this dynamic several times. Um, To his divinity, Jesus identified himself with the God who appeared to Moses in in Exodus 3, right? If you remember, Moses asked, who am I going to you know, say he sent me? And the response was, I am who I am. And, and that response, it expressed that, it expressed that God has always existed and always will exist. And then in John 8, <coughs> excuse me, Jesus says that before Abraham was born, I am. So he's making that, that same reference and that same claim. And then in Revelation 1, it refers to God the Father as the Alpha and the Omega. And only, you know, a dozen or so, well, about 20 chapters later, Jesus applies that title to himself in, in Revelation 22. And, and the Alpha and the Omega, this is a reference to the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. So he's saying, I am the beginning and the end. <clears throat> And the Bible uh, attributes uh, 
to Jesus, works that only God can do. Um, it explains to us, uh, in John 1, for example, it explains that everything ha- that has come into being has happened through him, that Jesus is the agent of creation. We just saw in that, in that, in that verse in uh, Revelation a minute ago that it said that he is the source of David. Matthew 14, it, it explains to us, and Jesus explains that he exhibits power over what he made. In Mark 2, he tells us that he forgives sins. And in John 5, he explains that he judges the world for sins. In Acts 7, he receives prayer. And in Philippians 2 and in Hebrews 1, he, he explains that he is worthy of worship, which is something that the apostles and the angels refused to receive because they, they weren't capable of it. It wasn't right for them, but Jesus receives worship. And then the Bible also tells us, though, that Jesus was fully human as well. The Bible explains to us that, that, that Jesus was fully human in body, soul, mind, and will. In Hebrews 2, it says that he had to be made like his brethren in all things because there was a moral obligation to be fully human in order to fulfill the promise that God made about his sacrifice. He had a real human body. He could get tired, right? We've seen in in this study of Mark a couple of times where he goes off to take a nap, which is something that some of us really love hearing, right? That that Jesus was a a napper. Um, We also... We also know that he was hungry, right? One of the ways that he was that he was tested in the wilderness, that he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, was because of his hunger, right? Satan offered to feed him. We saw that he was thirsty when when he when he met the the woman at the well. He asked for a drink because he was thirsty. He was capable of experiencing every human emotion in the in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus grieved, right? He grieved because of the, the coming separation from God. The, and, and just a couple weeks ago, we saw him get angry at the, money, at the money changers, right? Jesus was tempted the way that we are, and yet Hebrews 4 explains that he never sinned. God and and man have been reunited in the person of Jesus. So when 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 we get the identity of Jesus right, then we can respond to him in faith. Remember earlier I mentioned how wonderful it is that God wants to reveal himself to you. But guys, he doesn't just want, he doesn't just want us to understand who he is. He wants to be in relationship with us. Well, we all have a relationship with him already, um, but the reality is some of us maybe aren't all that close to him. So maybe what I should have said is that he wants to be in a right relationship with us. Because until that happens, we are all enemies of God. And when we look at that psalm 
that, we, that we've referenced a couple times, the one that, that Jesus references, the one that is the most quoted and alluded to psalm in all of the New Testament, 33 times that it gets mentioned or, or quoted. When we look at that, it says, the Lord has taken an oath and will not break his vow. He will punish the nations. He will shatter heads. He will be victorious. Now, if you were with us all the way back in January when we started this study of the book of Mark, you'll know that, that at the very beginning it said, this is the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And it was, it was good news because it told of the way to avoid being part of that. The relationship between God and man is reconciled through the person and the, and the work of Jesus. It's, it's, it required Jesus' divine nature to be able to live a sinless life. And it required his human nature to be the only possible sacrifice to pay for our sin. Many people get some things about Jesus, but they don't get all of who he is. And if they don't get all of who he is, it doesn't do them any good. Do you guys have Jesus right? That's the question. That's the one that we need to leave here with today. Sometimes you've heard us reference this little book, The Pursuit. There's nothing, nothing special by itself about, about this book. The, the, the idea is that it's a, it's a brief summarized explanation of what a walk with God looks like, of, of pursuing that relationship with him. Guys, if you have this, if you don't have Jesus right, go grab that book. Come talk to one of us afterwards today. Let's connect you with a small group or a mentor or somebody to help you have the right relationship with Jesus, to form that right opinion, make the right decision about Jesus. There's no time like today, and we're not guaranteed tomorrow. Let's pray. Lord God, I, um, I, I thank you for the honor of coming and, and, and walking through your word um, with your church. God, I, I hope that you are honored in it, but God, I also want, I, I, and I know you want hearts to be changed. And so, Lord, as we, as we leave here and as we, as we consider this, um, this lesson and as we dig into these resources and we and really, really try to chase down a better understanding of, of who, who you are, God, we know that you are faithful to reveal yourself to us because we know that that's something that you, that, that is a desire of your heart is that we would know you. So Lord, I ask that you would continue to do that, that you would make this something that is a priority to everybody in this room, that we would really uh, chase after you, that we would pursue you the way that you pursued us. God, that you would be the priority, that we would demonstrate like David did, that subservience to you, Lord, that we are subject to you, that you are the God of all creation and you are the God of our lives. Ultimately, Lord, we hope that you are honored in this. We hope that, that we honor you as we, as we uh, leave here with the choices that we make, the decisions that we, that we make, the way that we influence people, the way we share the good news of Jesus with our family and friends. 
God, thank you. And we say this in Jesus' name, amen. We you guys stand and sing one more song of worship?